Welcome everyone to today's webinar on communicating with patients and families who talk about miracles. My name is Michael Skaggs. I'm Director of Programs at the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab. I'll say just a few words on behalf of the lab before we get started. First, like most of our events, this is being recorded and live streamed. And so if you uh, miss a point or you want to come back and, and uh, review something again, you will certainly have that opportunity. Uh, second, when you get that link in your email, you will also have a chance to fill out a very brief survey on your experience here. And I would really appreciate if you could take a few moments to fill that survey out. Uh, it helps us plan future events that respond to your needs and what you would like to know more about. And then finally, I want to thank today's sponsor, the California State University Shiley Haynes Institute for Palliative Care. I'll put their website into the chat here in a few minutes and you will see uh, a link to them in the follow-up email. We're very grateful for their support. Jennifer uh, Ballantyne Moore, who runs the Institute, may be here in the audience and I wanna give her a chance to say something if she is. I don't see her at the moment. All right, we'll come back and grab her if we can. So with that, let me introduce today's guest. Sarah Bird Martelli is an Orthodox lay chaplain and bereavement counselor who has served in acute care and hospice care since 2002. She is the inpatient chaplain for the Massachusetts General Hospital Division of Palliative Care. Uh, Dr. Corrine Davila is a palliative care physician at MassGen. She received her medical degree from the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, completed her residency at UCSF and fellowship at the Harvard Interprofessional Palliative Care Fellowship Program. She is active in diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives and in Mass General Brigham and Women's United Against Racism efforts to reduce disparities in serious illness care for marginalized communities. So Sarah and Corrine, we're so happy to have you with us. Let me turn it over to you, Sarah. Thank you so much. It's such a joy to present with my colleague, uh, Corrine. Corrine and I have worked together for three years at Mass General, first when she was a fellow, I think, right, your first year, and then two years as an attending physician. And she brings so many gifts. And collaborating with her has really been one of the most rewarding parts of being at Mass General. And my colleagues who are so invested in whole patient care um, and truly looking at total pain and looking at really like a truly interprofessional way of caring for our palliative care patients. Um, so with that, I will share my screen one moment. Can I say, Sarah, you can't, you can't start with that and not give me the opportunity to say what a true joy it has been for me to be able to have a specialty palliative care chaplain as part of our interprofessional team. And I am not sure that I would have been able to kind of endure everything that the healthcare profession has undergone the last couple of years without, um, your support and partnership. So thank you. Thank you. And, you know, this talk has come, Karina and I actually have given versions of this talk in different settings, including in Spanish to PAHO, the Pan American Health Organization associated with World Health, which was fun. And um, it's something that really has arisen genuinely out of our patient care experiences and our struggles, um, some of our successes, and also areas where we really just want to continue to kind of expand and clarify ways to think about this really important issue. So I'm going to share my screen with my presentation and let's do the slideshow. Thumbs up, good? Okay, thank you. So here's our, uh, here's our info. Sarah, and can I uh, butt in yeah. for just one moment? 
Sure. Uh, so we had we had hoped to have uh, Jennifer Ballantyne more with us at the very beginning, and there was an issue with the link. I just sent that to her, so she's going to pop in here in just a minute uh, and just say a few words about the Shelley Haynes program. So I'll let you know when that happens. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt. No problem. And I, I, I love that the CSU Institute, they do great work and they have great palliative care education courses. Um, and I've, I've worked with them before. Um, so here's our three objectives. Sorry for the noise in the background. It should end in a sec. Um, so this is my, this is my team. Um, and actually Kareen is there in the green scrub pants and I'm there in the front. Um, this was the beginning of the COVID surge. This was April, 2020 and Kareen was still a fellow. So it's our social work, chaplain, physicians, NP all together. And so um, this talk is about hope and miracles and not exactly only from a spiritual care or chaplain lens in terms of how we, you know, what kind of interventions we do, but it's really about our role as the spiritual care uh, leader in the team, helping our team work together when we're caring for our patients and our families. Oh, go ahead. Thank you. Welcome, Jennifer. I'm so sorry about that link. Miss up. Thank you, everybody, for your patience. This is Jennifer Ballantyne Moore, uh, the executive director of the CSU Shiley Haynes Institute for Palliative Care. Wonderful colleague of the lab, wonderful supporter of the lab. Jennifer, tell us a little bit more about the programs you have going right now. I'm so sorry to be interrupting somehow. <laughs> not at all. It's my fault entirely. It's my fault entirely. Not Jennifer's, not anybody well, if else's. I'd, if I'd looked for the link, you know, earlier than like five minutes before. <laughs> But here we all are, and I'm, I'm delighted to be here and delighted to be sponsoring this, this webinar. I am a big, big fan of the lab and everything that they're doing. I love seeing chaplaincy supported as a, as a, and, and grown and, and, and really, um, you know, celebrated as a, as a meaningful and important member of the IDT and, uh, and, and all we do for people with uh, serious illness. Um, my, my one little PSA is that we do offer a, an eight-week uh, certificate course, uh, Essentials in Palliative Care Chaplaincy. Uh, it has been taken by, gosh, I think I was looking at the numbers yesterday, something like 1,100 uh, chaplains over a number of years, and all of them sing its praises very highly. Um, it's it's a, a, a deep dive into uh, palliative care for chaplains and spiritual care uh, providers who are interested in working in palliative care. And um, you can find a listing and more information on our website, csupalliativecare.org. And uh, we have uh, sessions of that course coming up to start on June 1st, July 13th, and August 31st. So maybe that's the way you want to spend your summer vacation. <laughs> Thanks very much for the quick interruption, and I'll let you get back to it. Thanks. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Thank you, Sarah, for your patience, and everybody else for your patience. So, sometimes things without you. Sometimes yeah. things go wrong on the back end, and this is what it looks like. So, thank you all for your patience. Sarah, we'll go back to you. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. Okay, I'll go back sharing my screen. All right. Good. Okay. So. Here's our, so what we're gonna to do today is we're gonna kind of talk about a conceptual framework for thinking about hope and miracles, right? Specifically with the chaplain as part of the greater palliative care team or, or just healthcare team in general. Um, then Karine and I will do kind of an interprofessional reflection on a case study that involved a patient and family hoping for miracle. 
And then also we will, I will share a teaching framework for non-chaplains on the healthcare team. And I really think, I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think this is one of the areas where chaplains can really show our expertise and our skill set, our understanding of many different spiritual and religious practices, and also really claiming um, how important it is to medical decision-making, to team sort of interpersonal um, interactions to the patient and family feeling respected in their culture and beliefs. Um, you know, there's a lot of pieces to this and it's an important area um, for us to really, to really own, I think. Um, okay, so I'm gonna start just with, you know, a very chaplain moment of having a brief poem. Um, and I love this um, poem by Emily Dickinson and I memorized this part. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. So. I'd like to make, you know, make the point that hope is something we can always have. And hope changes and moves and shifts over time, right? Depending on what's going on. But as chaplains, I think we are sort of um, positioned, especially to really be a person that holds hope for the team and um, kind of carries that. I mean, if we're not gonna hope with the patients, who is, right? And so um, don't forget that we can always hope together with, with our patients and families, no matter what. Um, you've probably heard this before, things like, well, it's in God's hands, or you know, only God knows when my time has come, or we want to do everything because if we don't, we're basically killing him, you know, due to a, a particular spiritual belief or saying like, if we send our dad to hospice, isn't that basically letting him die? We can't let him die. That doesn't go with our belief system or this idea of I'm not giving up. I'm a fighter, fighting and pushing and doing everything. We often see that a lot. And so um, I hear this as a chaplain and there are things that we can do as chaplains, of course, in our spiritual assessments and our interventions that really support and work through in a kind of a deep way and not on the surface, but like a deeper way about what hope means to someone, what miracle, what a miracle would mean to someone, what would that look like? Um, but it's also so important to convey that to our colleagues, not just to do that one-on-one -on -one with patients and families, but also to really name that for the team, because as Kareen will share with us, it can be very disorienting when the medical team hears statements like this. And more often than not, they hear it and it kind of just drops and no one picks it up and no one really wants to talk about it. So um, also a kind of important concept I think here is sort of the concept of authority, right? Or who's in charge here? Who really knows the answers to things, right? So here I have pictured, you know, a doctor patient holding hands, you know, maybe friends or family holding hands and also the famous picture from the Sistine Chapel of, you know, Adam and God, um, right? So is God in control? Are physicians the ones that have the authority? Is it the interpersonal? Of course, it's all these different things, right? But in different levels for different people. Some might say, you know, physicians have these ideas and these interventions and these things they can do, but only God has the last word. For others, they don't believe that and they're thinking about other types of miracles. Um, related to their belief system. So it's important to kind of think about how will you know when you're talking to a patient or family, how will they be discerning what's right for them? What is the source of power and authority and wisdom and how do they access that? Is it through prayer? Is it through um, talking, through worship, through um, scripture, through meditation practices? But to frame it in terms of like, this is a really important concept in terms of authority and wisdom. I think if I can even chime in there, Sarah, Thanks, to add, 
Um, there's so many, um, as you called it, you know, power imbalance and power structures. You know, I think oftentimes you think about the the clinician and the patient have a bit of a power imbalance because often clinicians have, you know, spent years acquiring a certain amount of medical knowledge. And yet we always must respect that the, the patient in front of us is, is obviously going to be the expert on kind of their own body. And what you have to remember is as you highlighted, you know, each individual has their own set of kind of spiritual and faith beliefs and their own belief in, in power systems. And you also have to remember that the people caring for them and the clinicians themselves have their own set of beliefs. And so, you know, even for myself, I can name as someone who spent years acquiring medical knowledge and absolutely believes in the kind of power of data and science and all of that, you know, I am myself a person of faith and I have to believe in my own practice that, um, that there has to be something bigger than what medical science can offer. Cause I think we can all be surprised sometimes. And so I think it's just important to remember that just as individuals all have their own beliefs, so do the people caring for them. Thank you so much. Corrine, do you feel like you had much training about this when you were in med school or residency about these types of issues? I will say not at all. And I think it's definitely taken me, um, time in, in kind of my own medical career coming into my own in terms of feeling um, comfortable disclosing that part of my identity. Because I think in medicine, oftentimes you are trained to be, um, you know, very clinical. Yes, of course, like empathic and listening, but really that your job is kind of more to learn about the person in front of you, not necessarily share about yourself. And I think with time and realizing, and I think with a lot of palliative care training as well, um, and this is probably much more core and central to uh, chaplain training is, you know, that you can connect a lot more deeply with individuals sometimes when you share bits of yourself that uh, that are relatable. And so I think it's it's always about finding that right balance. But I think it's been a journey uh, of my own kind of, you know, without a lot of um, medical training oversight, so to speak, to uh, get me to where I am today. I love that. And I think, you know, I want to just name something which is just for us to take a second as listeners and chaplains and caregivers, but to think about kind of what are what we're bringing to this conversation about hope and miracles. Do you believe in miracles? Um, you know, some people might have that really strongly as part of their faith tradition, right? This is, we believe that in the possibility of this. Um, you know, I, I put pictures of all different kinds of ways of of practice, that's actually my church in the bottom right, um, St. Mary's in Cambridge, Mass. Um, but I think sometimes when we talk about miracles, there's a sense of like, miracles are things that probably won't really happen. And I just wanna challenge that a tiny bit. Yes, miracles are unlikely, sure. Or maybe we attribute them to different things. We attribute them to God. Do we attribute them to interpersonal connection? Do we attribute them to medical interventions? I mean we have to think deeply about how we understand it in our own minds and what that private internal dialogue is kind of going on when we're interacting with a patient or family who says, we believe that um, God will give us a miracle and will heal our daughter. I will say, I had a patient once who was 40, in his 40s, um, a, uh, he was a DJ, he was a, a young black male and with three kids and a wife and he needed, he was in liver failure and he was in heart failure. He had, he, was, he had a congenital heart condition and then had some liver issues. 
and he was 44 and he was not particularly a religious person. Um, our religious meaning making was kind of around um, music actually and like hip hop and, and uh, being, the, being the same age, we kind of really, um, we talked a lot about, about music making and culture and that was really our source of joy. For him, um, it was looking like he was gonna have to go home on hospice. He was you know, in the ICU, in and out. He needed a dual heart and liver transplant. And for him, it was this, it was so painful to think about, you know, there was nothing left and only this kind of incredibly unlikely thing needed to happen for him to survive. Well, lo and behold. You might imagine just from a medical perspective, getting a heart transplant feels like a unicorn moment, let alone a heart plus liver transplant. So just to put that in medical context as well. Right. So it seems even unlikely for you as a physician who's aware of the kind of in this world. Lo and behold, one Sunday night, boom, the patient got a dual heart and liver transplant. And it was not an easy road. And it took a long time. He was in the hospital for, you know, almost, I don't know, seven months or something like that. But you know what? He got better. And he looked at me, you know, as he was kind of getting ready to be discharged and said, you know, I, I never really prayed for a miracle before. I was always taught to not, to not ask for that. You just kind of accept what's in front of you. But you know what? I think carrying that hope a little bit throughout this whole time, you know, I think I believe in miracles now, you know, and I saw him a couple, like a month or a month or two ago, he came in for an outpatient visit six months out and, you know, he's tall and strong and looking good and hugged me and looks amazing. And it was like, it helped me remember that sometimes things that are very unlikely can happen um, and to, to hold that, to be open to it, right? So Kareen, Kareen will share a case that she had with us. Great. Um, so I wanna share a story of a patient who I took care of. She was um, a 21 year old Latina woman who had a sickle cell disease who was actually transferred to our hospital from another hospital. And she was actually, we were her third hospital. So she had started at a small community hospital and had been transferred up, which, you know, as you might imagine, is just really a sign of how ill she was. And she was um, admitted with acute respiratory distress syndrome due to COVID-19 infection. And this was really uh, early in the pandemic. And she was started on, um, an in medical intervention called extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, ECMO. This may be something that you've heard in the news. It's really the single most advanced therapy that medicine has to offer for people with very severe respiratory illness. And she was started on that immediately, like within an hour of, of arriving to our hospital. And what happened was that, you know, the, the team as in, in medicine, we often try to do when someone is so very ill, they often try to share their worry with um, patients, family members, and, you know, um, just express their worry that of how ill they are, because, you know, heaven forbid, if they get worse, they don't, they don't want anything to be a surprise to uh, family members. And so often medical teams feel this onus to share their worry. And, you know, as the team members did that, her mother, you know, it, and picture a mother in this situation. This is her baby girl who's really still a baby. She's, you know, um, only 21. And she identified as a Catholic woman and consistently when receiving any kind of medical information, which 
was often usually negative. We weren't really getting a lot of positive updates in terms of her clinical status. Um, or when the team would share worry, she would consistently express, I have faith in a miracle from God. And I believe my daughter will come home to me soon. And that was really her refrain. It was what she responded to consistently to multiple team members. Um, and that, that was where she stood. And so what response does that engender in the team? So we can start kind of with the top circle. I can tell you most of the people on the medical team, and granted, like I said, every person is an individual. So how everyone responds is, uh, is individual. But I can tell you as somebody walking into the situation, what I was hearing from team members was, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear thinking, you know, this mom just doesn't get it. You know, what, how does, you know, how does she possibly think that her daughter is going to get up and walk out of this ICU and walk home to her again, a lot of skepticism, you know, there's many medical professionals who, you know, don't have, um, religious or spiritual beliefs. And so it's more difficult for them to wrap their head around this idea of a religious miracle, which is what she was so clearly and consistently um, advocating for. For many, there was also a lot of uncertainty. You know, how do I possibly respond to a request like that? And that was honestly left them um, really paralyzed with fear or not knowing what to say or fearing kind of saying the wrong thing. And so this was kind of the source of the um, call that we received, you know, when they requested palliative care help, they're like, we're not sure what to do here. And so being on the receiving end of that phone call, what my response was, uh, was first of all, breathe, <laughs> you know, in medical situations, we often, um, the most extreme emergency is, is it's called a code blue you know, when someone dies and you can imagine you've seen it in many medical TV shows. If you've seen when, uh, when someone dies and all of a sudden there's a hundred people that are running to the room. And, um, and in, in my medical training, I had to train how to be a code leader, um, to lead the army of individuals who are just arrived to the room and create order out of seeming chaos and try to unify our resources. Um, and so we always joke that in CPR, the first step is to check the pulse of the patient to see, do they have a pulse? And so they teach us as leaders, uh, the first thing you have to do before you can be a code leader is first breathe and check your own pulse and know that it's going to be okay that you have to walk into this room with kind of clarity and authority. So anyways, a little bit of an aside, but my first response to any situation is you first always have to breathe and in some ways check your own pulse. And really, when I walked into the room, um, the, the goal is to always explore with curiosity, because as Sarah will get into, we really don't know, you know, miracles, how people interpret miracles or what people think of as miracles can be very different person to person. And so what I always strive to go in is without any preconceived notions, I ask them to share. And I, that's what I say, same thing I did with this mother. I asked her to share what a miracle looked like with her, for her and what she hoped for. And of course, my immediate gut response is let me partner with Sarah, partner with a chaplain, um, partner with someone who has, you know, 
more expertise uh, than I do in this space, uh, even though, of course, I'm trying to kind of grow and cultivate my own skills and my own personal practice all the time. And I can tell you that I learn things from Sarah every single time we do joint visits. And so um, then I also just wanted to add, you know, what do you do if there is no, no chaplain? Um, I'll put in a plug right away. I think step one is advocate for more chaplain resources because I think there's nobody uh, like all of you kind of taking the time to sit in on this webinar who have that type of expertise and who can connect with um, all patients, no matter what background they're coming from and at what level they want to connect about kind of making meaning, whether that's through faith, religion, spirituality. Um, and then uh, I've also another tool that I've learned from Sarah is uh, using the AMEN protocol. So I'll leave that as a teaser and let her go into it a little bit later. Thank you, Corrine. I think, you know, especially, you know, I've been doing this for almost 20 years, but I don't think until really the past few years of being an MGH have I really been able to work so closely with physicians. And so it's very helpful for us to hear kind of what's going on in your mind, you know, what you need help with and how we can support you in that. Um, and, and also, you know, I guess I would assume that you had some training in this. You went to Sinai. It's like, you know, they're on top of things there. But even at MGH, you know, where I am now, the residents, um, medicine residents learn almost nothing about this kinds of stuff, this kind of stuff. They can say, tell me more. They learn, tell me more. But but there's there's more beyond tell me more, isn't there? Um, so, you know, just to, just, uh, to reflect now, one thing I've been trying to teach the team is anytime you hear stuff about like hope, miracles, decision-making, like ding, call the chaplain, please. So not an automatic, well, sort of a mentally automatic referral when patients or families are wondering about this, especially when it has, when it comes to decision-making and very complex situations. Also, are you included in family meetings? Sometimes it's hard to figure out when they are. You have to really kind of pay attention to the team and talk with the team to sort it out. But it's so important that, especially if we, um, if the issue is related to spiritual decision-making, that chaplains are at the table at a family meeting. You know, you're not maybe going to take the lead all the time, but sometimes you might, because we have that language and that comfort, hopefully, to kind of name what's going on, but also to be part of the team, which we'll talk more about. So this is an article that's that came out um, in 2018 that's kind of interesting. There are good references. Um, I made a nice reference list at the end, so you can check it all out. I won't get super into it. It was um, written by physicians, but it's kind of different types of hope, right? So there's innocuous hope, you know, the sort of like... How, and how do you respond? There's shaken hope, which is like um, hope that, you know, maybe a miraculous recovery isn't forthcoming. You can, there's part, there's grieving, there's sadness, confusion, anger. There's integrated hope, which is maybe part of a bigger spiritual framework for understanding how a person's life, um, you know, how hope and miracles fit into their life, or what he calls um, strategic hope, um, which is kind of an adversarial type of hope that it's like, you don't know what you're talking about. I know that so-and-so is going to get better or we're going to do everything that we need to do. And that can be very tricky, right? Um, and again, a lot of these responses, these are things that non-chaplains are supposed to do. Thankfully, it does say engage clergy and chaplain. Um, but a lot of these interventions really are about unity within the team right? And also just naming what's going on. This is difficult, you know, naming those feelings and, and emotions. We theoretically are good at that. So we can bring that and help our colleagues do that. 
I think Sarah, you know, just the, that framework answers some of what folks I've been uh, watching in the chat of, you know, expanding the definition of a miracle. And I think that framework is really helpful because a miracle can really mean so very different things to different people. And that's why I think it's always, you know, start with curiosity to understand when you hear a request for a miracle or when you hear that throwing around, what does it mean for that person? Mm -hmm. And actually, I only just looked at the chat right now, and it is very exciting and active. Sorry, I just didn't even look at it, but great conversations. Again, this is, you know, this is hopefully the beginning of a lot of thinking, and I encourage all of you to, you know, do more writing and thinking about this. So there's, there's a thing in palliative care called fast facts, and it's basically just this kind of like one page thing about some topic related to palliative care. So um, since this seemed to be coming up a lot in life in the team, I wrote with my colleague, Leah Rosenberg, um, who's wonderful, who's out on maternity leave, shout out to Leah. Um, I wrote this fast facts with her called communication strategies when patients utilize spiritual language to hope for a miracle. And it's kind of these bullet points. And this is really intended for all clinicians, but I think we need to know it as chaplains because I think hopefully it's, it's helpful to us sort of in our own interventions with patients and families, but also to really teach this to the team. So here's kind of the summary and then we'll go through each part. One, recognize that spiritual beliefs affect decision-making in a variety of ways, in, in, a ways, in a way that requires us to be curious. Secondly, begin with curiosity, seeking clarity. Three, align with their hopes for a miracle. And four, also explore how previous miracles may impact their current point of view. This is a, this is a really important one that I think sometimes we forget about, but can make a big difference. And Kareem, please feel free to chime in as needed. Okay, so the first one. So even within the same faith or belief community, the implications of a given religious belief vary substantially, right? So when, for example, when a patient states they do not wish to give up hope for a miracle, they may be requesting that the clinician do everything, right? Do everything possible to help them live longer. For them, a miracle comes through uh, using and affording all these different kinds of treatments that might be available. For others, such words might convey a wish to delay or discontinue standard treatment. Um, I had a breast cancer patient who had early breast cancer who um, was very into Benny Hinn, who was like a faith healer. And she went, you know, to different Benny Hinn like conferences and all these things and did not choose to opt for regular medical treatment, kind of traditional treatment, and then came into us um, really in a, a very bad place physically, mentally, and spiritually, because she felt like she had failed or something had been, you know, sort of ruined. She wasn't in the right place to receive this healing. So she had so much existential distress. And now she was in a lot of physical distress because her cancer had progressed. So again, not to necessarily assume what someone's beliefs mean. And it's not just religious people, right? We all have different ways of making meaning and understanding why things happen. Okay, so begin with curiosity. Take the stance of a curious explorer. Um, so if someone says like, this is in God's hands, you just, again, remain non-judgmental, use open-ended responses. Tell me more what that looks like for you. Can you tell me more about what you're hoping for? What does a miracle look like for you? I think um, I'm okay saying things like this, right? What does that look like for you? What does it feel like, Kareen, for you as a physician to say, to ask more about it? Does it, I wonder if it creates a sense of like, oh no, we're going to get into some like intense theological conversation. Like, how do you navigate that? Honestly, probably different for each person. I do think that for many clinicians, oftentimes um, they fear or worry 
asking questions, not knowing what response they might get or not knowing what direction patients want to take it in. But again, I always use the stance of curiosity, as you just named of, you know, I may not, um, necessarily identify with or know, or, you know, be as an advanced theologian who's able to engage if a patient brings it to a certain level. Um, but I think asking, using these questions and asking with curiosity, um, and genuinely listening to what the response is and not being dismissive of it, um, is the most important piece. And also, you know, if someone then gets into launches into some intense theological thing, you can always say something like, that sounds really important to you. Let me call my friend, the chaplain, you know, so right, just like we would with any kind of where we where you as a non chaplain, you, you need advice or you need a consult from someone who is an expert in that area. Um, you would call a psych consult or you would call a, I don't know, infectious disease consult. And you can certainly call a spiritual care consult too. Once you realize the scope of what you can address, like you're, you're, you could go beyond the scope of what you're comfortable with. Okay, and so this is a key thing, the concept of aligning, right? So we name, aligning is just really naming your willingness to hope alongside someone. I hope for a miraculous cure for your cancer as well. And I think, you know, to say for ourselves and also for our colleagues, can we genuinely say that? Do we, I mean, I think we can actually hope for a miraculous cure. I think that would be amazing. It was amazing when my patient got a heart and liver. It was unbelievable. It gave me so much joy for like so long. It gave me like joy and hope. Um, so to say that I hope, I hope for that too. You know, again, that's so, that's so important. To, I'm sorry to jump in again. Oh, you know, I think that's, that's so important because I think, you know, with all, even if I'm facing a scenario like Sarah's patient who was, you know, needing two organs, you know, even if I think with everything that I know in medicine, that this person will likely not get better if he or she did. I would jump for joy with them and I can genuinely hope for the same while I worry that it might not happen. Absolutely. That's so important to be able to hold multiple things at once, right? And we can do that as, you know, as these as these types of clinicians, chaplains and others, we can hold things together, right? And so that comes to the next point, which is using and, we like to say the palliative care and instead of but, when holding two contrasting ideas together. You know, I know these goals are important to you. And I also worry that time might be short. I know that you are hoping for a miraculous, you know, cure for your cancer. And I also worry that we're running out of treatments. You can say those things and it really, it, if you use, but I hope, I, I know these goals are important to you, but I worry time is short. It basically negates the whole first half of that sentence. So if there's anything you take away, try to use and a lot. And again, you can validate their desire while inviting discussion of additional hopes. You know, there's this term sort of like hope shifting. But, you know, so even if maybe you're not going to be cured and live until you're 85, maybe you will have some symptom relief and you will have more time. You will have time to be able to go home on hospice and die, choose the location of, of where you die, like to be at home or to make it to your daughter's wedding or to complete like religious um, or spiritual rituals to, you know, to engage in kinds of these things that we can hope for, you know, there's different things that we can hope for, right? And so to really kind of address all of those, um, knowing we might not reach the ultimate hope miracle. Um, but again, we don't need to, we don't need to kind of shoot, shoot down the hope, right? 
No, and I just want to comment. There are so many um, great questions happening right now in the chat. It's almost yeah. difficult to track. And so <laughs> um, just remember there is a Q&A function and we will have some time at the end. So um, for some of these questions, if you want to utilize that, we'll uh, hopefully have some time at the end. Yeah, we will definitely, we will definitely address that for sure. Um, and this is really important too. If a patient feels that God has healed their disease in the past, they may hope for God's healing again and request medical treatment accordingly. That makes sense, right? So, but sometimes people don't know that. So that's why it's really important to get a good social history, to get a good history in the family. What has this been like for you? And really go back more than a month, but go back to, you know, the course of their life. If they've seen miracles before, why not hope for one again? And so, you can, again, to acknowledge this, I think it's amazing your mom has lived so long with this disease. You know, at the same time, I also worry that I wonder if this time is different. You know, I wonder if there's something has changed and maybe it hasn't, maybe it hasn't. But the point is, you know, if someone's seen this before, they would, they might want to see it again. And maybe the team doesn't know that. And so you as the chaplain can be like, Hey, by the way, this person had a miraculous thing happen three years ago. And that's informing their way of thinking about it can be a little aha moment. Um, oh, and this is interesting too, Kareen, you went back to saying uh, the team was felt like um, the patient, the 21 year old patient's mother, like didn't really get it, right? Oh, does she not really understand how serious it is? You know, and so you might worry that patients who are hoping for a miracle lack insight into the seriousness of their illness, but hoping for a medical miracle can be a, a coping mechanism that actually implies a level of clinical insight, right? If they didn't know how serious it was, they probably wouldn't feel the need to hope for a miracle, right? So it's actually almost an acknowledgement of how dire the situation is. Um, you know, and there's this, this concept, a paper that, that came out a while ago called, you know, it says hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. Um, we might not frame it like that or use that exact language, but we sort of hope, you know, what, for what could happen while holding the possibility that we, you know, to think about the bigger picture, right? Best case, worst case, most likely. Um, that's something we use too. Kareen, what do you think about like false hope, the idea of false hope? Do you feel like, do you think about that or do you want to, are you aware like you don't want to give people false hope? I hear that expression sometimes uh -huh. and I wonder about it. I mean, I think, and this this kind of is similar to one of the questions that I saw quickly in the chat about, you know, how is it, how do you respond if, you know, you express or share the the family's hope for a miracle and, and it doesn't happen? Um, how do you respond to kind of emotions of the patient or family at that time? And what I find is that more often than not, I, I don't find that I'm on the receiving end of backlash, if anything, kind of sharing that hope and being authentic and genuine in that, even if it doesn't happen, you know, and, and I'm speaking with grieving family members, if, if, um, you know, a patient has died often, they're just so grateful that I was listening to them and kind of believing them and validating their hope and their beliefs that I don't ever find that I've, I've had backlash or if there's ever been backlash, it's not really been directed um, at me. You know, I do think that sometimes depending on, you know, their own spiritual or religious beliefs, I think sometimes the, the lack of getting the miracle they, they hope for can lead to fractures in their own faith. 
and I think that's a little bit of a separate problem that that maybe Sarah you can touch on at one point too. Thank you. Um, it's such a great, it's such a big topic. So I just kind of pointed out a couple of themes. This was actually a picture of my patient's room who, who is Orthodox and I set up this kind of, <laughs> I just, I love this picture, but um, just things to be aware of that we can't really unpack today, but you know, the, the concept of, um, you know, language, like what, how we, especially as chaplains, I think can utilize some of the medical language while also really engaging with patients and families um, in a way that um, validates their faith perspective. If they use language of scripture or theological language or concepts about God or the holy or sense of self or meaning making to really dive into that with them to like go deeper, right? Um, that is one way we can really um, excel. We've talked a little bit about team distress. Um, team distress is what Kareen evoked earlier when we said, you know, the team is kind of like, well, the patient and family just say they're hoping for a miracle and they're just going to take her home. And then the team is sort of just like, okay, well, um, not sure what to do now. And so sometimes we get called in as palliative care just to kind of help support the team, right? And to say, you know, this is hard. This might not go well. We're going to do our best. Um, there's also, you know, these kind of competing goals of different teams, right? Sometimes we as a palliative care team might say like, this is, you know, the big picture. I'm not sure if things are really, you know, prognosis is good. At the same time, other services might want to recommend medical treatments that, you know, are kind of a last ditch effort, but they also want to help. They want to cure. They want to be supportive and use their medical expertise. So there's all these different pieces, right? Another very big part of this is bias and health disparities and culture, which is a maybe we can come back and do another thing. Kareen is actually kind of an expert in this area and has been doing amazing work, especially around health disparities during COVID. Um, and but a lot of this has it, it relates to cultural humility and cultural understanding. Do you have like a short? Do you want to? talk a little bit about that Korean, knowing that we can't get I, it. A I do feel like it's, it's kind of a whole other topic unto itself, but I think in general, which what will likely not be surprising um, to this audience is that, you know, racial and ethnic um, inequities exist across healthcare. And I think, you know, and, and across life. And so there are some differences in terms of um, how much, for example, black and Latinx communities value, um, religion and spiritual beliefs and faith guide their own healthcare decision-making. And I saw one of the things that I saw in the chat um, is kind of the, the role of, you know, external pastoral support and kind of external spiritual support that's different from, you know, and doesn't have the kind of embedded nature and chaplaincy training of kind of being part of the medical team. And so I think, you know, where possible, and it's not always easy, is kind of, you know, connecting with them and trying to collaborate with them and kind of sharing, you know, of course, with the patient's permission, um, and if they're open to it, collaborating, because I think sometimes it can be really fearful of like, well, you know, it's a, it's an unknown factor. They're, they're kind of, you know, out there and what are they going to believe? And the reality of the matter is the patient and family are going to be listening to them regardless. So wouldn't it be better to have them be part of the conversation so that you can hear where they're coming from too, um, and collaborate where possible. And so I think that phenomenon is, is all the more important um, for, you know, our diverse patient population. Um, but, you know, like Sarah said, maybe we can do a whole other session on some inequities that, that exist. Um, yeah, definitely. 
So I'll just whip through this. Thank you, Rhonda Cooper, who I've never met, but I've taught this approximately a billion times to my colleagues. And um, it's very handy dandy. I actually printed it out on a little piece of paper and I give it to people. Um, and, but this is the Amen protocol, so, which is something that non-chaplains can use when they're facing uh, patients who are using medical, I'm sorry, uh, religious or spiritual language, uh, hoping for a miracle. So A is affirm the patient's belief. M is meet them where they are. I join you, aligning, right? Hoping for a miracle. Educate from your role as a medical provider. And here's my experience and, and understanding as a medical provider. And this is really the most important one, I think. And you should say this, if you're in a family meeting with the team, end the meeting with this. No matter what, we will be with you every step of the way. So no matter what happens, even if this, in, this incredibly unlikely thing doesn't happen, if it happens, if things change, if something, you know, no matter what, we will be with you. We will not abandon you. And that is incredibly important. Um, there are ethical principles at play. And I think in light of the fact that there are many comments, we may kind of just only briefly glance over this, but um, you know, looking at the ethical principles involved in the spiritual language around medical decision-making is really important. Beneficence, what will truly help the patient and their family, right? Are we causing suffering for the patient because the patient is requesting aggressive, or the family is requesting aggressive treatment that really actually might cause more suffering? Um, how can we speak honestly and openly with them to prevent future suffering? Do we need to protect them from um, you know, resuscitation by making them be a DNR, DNI, those kinds of things. We can still hold their hope while also thinking to the future to protect them from more suffering. Is the situation perpetuating inequity, right? Are we aware of kind of the justice aspect? Um, and also autonomy, that's a huge piece, right? We, we value autonomy. Um, we want them to be able to make their own decisions from their authentic sense of self. At the same time, we also want to guide them about what's medically appropriate and recommended. So briefly, I will just say, um, you know, what if the family is just like, no, I don't want to shift my hope. I don't want to, I, what I want is a full bodily healing of my sister. And what if, and what happens if they, it doesn't happen and the patient still dies? How does this impact grief? Now, what I can say is I do think honoring and acknowledging this beforehand can absolutely facilitate like healthy anticipatory grief and healthy processing of, you know, seeing your loved one be ill, suffer, potentially to, to die. I had a patient named Marie um, who is a Haitian uh, woman, Creole speaking. We use an interpreter with her most of the time. Um, but the, but she did speak, she knew a lot of, um, prayers and like scripture verses in English. So the two of us would kind of, um, you know, talk a lot and she had, um, lung disease and was post COVID and was really struggling. Um, and her situation was becoming very dire. So, but her family was like, we believe in miracles. We believe in God. God is the author of all. And so it was actually worked very well because I was involved very early on. So really could acknowledge that could pray with her sing, you know, really, enjoy the, their faith practice together with them while also being part of the team. And for example, they did protect her from, you know, aggressive resuscitation because they knew it wouldn't help her. So she became a DNR, DNI. But again, we continued to really acknowledge and support that. When the patient began to actively die, I asked her brother, I said, I know you've really been praying for a miraculous healing of Marie, you know, and, and I wonder what that's like for you now. And he said, we trust God. 
we did everything we could. So for them, they held that space. They held it open, right? For God to be able to do the work that they felt God could do, right? They did everything they could. And so actually, even though it wasn't the outcome they hoped for, it still was an okay experience. It was a beautiful experience because they hadn't been kind of dismissed or, or sort of just their faith hadn't been put to the side, but instead it was honored and respected. Um, and so when the time came and she did die, they really felt like they had done their best and they had discerned you know, their um, God's will and, and their ability to, to pray and to turn to God in a time of distress. Um, takeaways. Some, or yeah. I, sorry, before the, before the takeaways, Sarah, um, yeah. I'll just jump in for a second and kind of offer a bit of the conclusion of the case that I started yes. with early on about the young woman. Um, and as someone astutely pointed out in the comments, you know, a parent who has an ill child, no matter what their age is, um, doesn't at, at times, you know, just doesn't want to be, you know, smacked upside the head with the information that their child is dying every single day. I think there, as Sarah said, their hope for a miracle indicates that they have insight into how serious the medical condition was. And this is absolutely the case with, um, with our patient's mother. And I think what we did was to continue to show up, um, every day and just listen to her to elicit, to be a space and to be kind of a comfortable place where she could talk, express her own joys. And, you know, even ourselves, it's, we had been clear and she understood that we were worried about how ill her daughter was. And we didn't have to spend every five minutes repeating it again and again. She heard it. It, it wasn't that she wasn't aware. And so, um, unfortunately, uh, the patient did have an acute, uh, clinical decompensation and it became, uh, clear, more clear, um, that she, that she was dying. And so we were able to just be there and support her mother, you know, who was no matter what going to be experiencing unimaginable grief at the loss of her young daughter. But I do believe with my heart that, um, us being present, us listening to her and partnering with her, um, helped her eventually when she had to go through that grief process. And they were very fortunate to have you on their care team, Kareen. It would have, you know, I, I can't imagine if you hadn't been there, you know, just to pull in just the team and to support and to really honor that. I just, you did really good work. Um, here's my references. And so I think we have 10 minutes left and we have lots in the chat, which I think Michael has popped back in so that we can have a little time for discussion. Um, and so here are the references. I'm happy to send it out to folks. Um, and also I did wanna just end with this poem, but I'm just gonna let you scan it. But there's this beautiful poem about miracles by Walt Whitman, because I think, you know, it just, to me, every hour of the light and dark is a miracle. Every cubic inch of space is a miracle. You know, this whole sense of wonder, right? A sense of wonder and openness and hope that we can really hold for patients and families. And we can convey it to the team when the team is feeling distressed. And we can do that authentically in a way that um, really provides that holistic care for patients that we're really trying to provide. So I'll stop sharing now. Thank you both. Yes, we have a few. Green, you're muted. 
I was just saying there was a there was a request to go back to the takeaway slide for a second. Oh, sure. I will re I will go back. I don't know if someone wanted to maybe snap a quick yes. picture. Yeah. We'll leave it up there for a moment and then um, try to begin tackling some of these questions. So these are complicated questions. I will sort of try to distill them as much as I can. Uh, the first has to do with that palliative care and that you mentioned that a lot of us are familiar with. This person says, how do you recommend working with families with even voicing that and to express worries or concerns is experienced as a lack of faith? Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe they have a belief system where verbalizing even the possibility of the negative is manifesting as negativity itself. So when you're trying to use all of these mitigating approaches and language and still there's pushback what do you do uh it sort of depends on my relationship with them if i know them pretty well and i've been able to kind of develop a strong pastoral relationship with them i may be i really may engage them like in some deep theological stuff like about you know if they you know do they look to scripture for you know guidance about the way they think about hope and miracles i may do some like some you know, real like theological reflection about faith and belief and doubt, um, you know, you know, you know, for example, I might say, I mean, this is quite specific, but, you know, I'm a, I'm Christian, you know, I mean, Jesus never promised that everyone would be physically healed from every single physical thing, but there are some things that Jesus did promise. For example, I would say he promised that he would never leave us alone. God would never leave us. And that's something that I talk a lot about, like, or those kinds of things. So I might say there are these ideas that we have theologically, um, but let's engage your faith tradition, the way you worship, the way you pray, the way you, you know, read Holy Scripture, the, the way, um, what, like, where are the areas that we can really work with and, and kind of nuance that thinking, right? Again, I can't always do that with everyone, right? I can't. I can't name that for everyone, but some of it is just about developing trust and like, and having a place to ask those questions in a safe space. I'm not going to judge them. I want them to ask questions. So um, in that way, kind of being a chaplain and not being their personal clergy is actually a good thing because maybe they can express some of that stuff in a safe place. Oh, there's so many questions. And Are you going to say there's, yeah. I, I appreciated the, the comment or question that I saw about, um, you know, hoping for the best and preparing for the worst and want considering reframing the worst language. Cause for some, you know, death may not be the worst. And so mm. I actually, um, want to highlight that, that there are also times where, um, individuals are like, well, they're, they're asking for a miracle. And then I go and explore with curiosity and the miracle they're hoping for is that they, their loved one has a peaceful death. And I'm like, Oh, well, you know, it's all about what does it mean to you? And you're right for many death may not be the worst. So I would say, I, I think the hope for the best prepare for the worst language is often language that we use. I think a lot of our work in palliative care is bringing teams together and aligning them so that we have kind of a unified message to the patient and family when we're engaging in family meetings. And so I think that framework is, um, is best used when we're kind of corralling all the individuals on the medical care team. But I wouldn't say, I, I agree, I wouldn't recommend using that language explicitly with patients necessarily, but you know, you can say, you know, like what's the, 
you know, I, I hope alongside with you for X, Y, Z, and I'm worried that ABC may happen too. You don't have to name it as the worst. They're probably hearing or, or may be labeling it as such for themselves. I think we have time for one more question, and this is actually a really interesting one. And uh, so Matthew raises a, a scenario, a real scenario, where a patient and family insisted that they had received a miraculous healing, but all of the diagnostics said, no, nothing has changed. <laughs> so how might a chaplain respond if the, the patient and, fam and or family feel they have experienced some sort of miraculous intervention, but the medical side of it would seem to disagree? Matthew, that's a really interesting situation. Thank you. That sounds hard. <laughs> I mean, I guess what I would say is, um, you know, you do, you do the best you can with what you have and you do your best to be honest and brave and to say the hard things. And also to understand that, you know, we're not gonna, we don't change a lot of things, right? We don't, we can't change how people think. If they feel that, that's how they feel, you know, and you can explain it to the team and say, this is what they believe. And, and, you know, the, the situation sort of might pan out in any number of ways, right. That will share that they weren't healed or were, I mean, it, it's just really tricky. And I think sometimes we end up in a situation where we, we, it's causing distress. We know that this person is maybe not looking at the same scans that we are or making the same treatment decisions that we would make and we have to hold that and to and to you know in ourselves and to do that internal work to say like I really don't disagree I don't agree with this I'm struggling with this this is really hard and um you you do the best you can I think you know and and it's it's really tricky and I'm glad you're part of the conversation um you don't want to cause more hurt or more suffering right you don't want to undermine what they're believing at the same time like there's only so much we can do right we have to truth telling honesty compassion that's what we can do yeah I think that's absolutely right Sarah I have not much more to add it's a hard place to be and um and I think all you can do is, is try to um, partner and share and honor where they're coming from. Probably a very good opportunity for chaplains to be part of that conversation. I could see it being very difficult if a, if a medical team member is saying, look, you're, you're requesting discharge and here is what all the charts look like, which would seem to say you should not be discharged. Do you understand that? For the chaplain to be there so that the patient and family do not feel sort of well, a lot of a lot of emotion could be part of that conversation. So, Matthew, mm -hmm. thank you for that example. That's that's really difficult and really tricky. Um, I hope not many chaplains have to deal with that. We are at the top of the hour. Thank you both so much. I think that you have obviously addressed something that a lot of chaplains are are working with and dealing with on a regular basis. And I think this has been of enormous value to them. Thank you both very much. Thank you once more uh, to Jennifer Moore and the CSU Shiley Haynes Institute for Palliative Care. We really appreciate their support. And thank you to all of you for being with us this afternoon. We will see you again soon. Bye-bye. Thank you again thank for you all. all your engagement, everybody, and all the questions. I'm sorry we could only answer a fraction. <laughs> yes, keep Bye -bye. the conversation going. Thank you so much. <laughs>